perhaps one of the most treasured of all commodities of life would be personal security. Uh, we want to be secure in whatever phase of life, situation of life we're in, just give me security. We'll do just about anything to get it. We know this. We'll spend large amounts of money to gain it. We'll give untold hours of our lives in order to get it. We will give relationships. We will abandon relationships with the thought that maybe I can get more security. Children, spouses, grandchildren, we neglect them time-wise because we're going after security. We will even go to war in order to get security. We will risk our lives. We will often give lives just to say we want to be secure. It's important, and rightly so. Unfortunately, I think most people think the pathway to security is control. If we can just control maybe our finances and have the opportunity to invest, if I just had the resources, could invest, then I could be in control of my financial future. Or somebody looks at their health and says, you know, if I can just control my diet, if I control my exercise, then I can make sure that I have good health. People think in terms of, if I can just have control over my schedule, if I could just be the boss, then I could have security. And the list just goes on and on. All the different ways we're looking for security. Well, now there is some degree of truth to the idea that control is important, but, but I'm not sure we've got it understood correctly as to where that control really should be. For instance, you can take some of the people of life today who have the most control in these areas we've described. And some of these people will be the most insecure of all people. Interesting. Wonder why? Don't you think it has to do with the fact that, that most of us are saying, if I had control, if I had... And, but these people are saying, I've got it. And they're saying, it didn't give me security. What kind of control can you and I have that's going to protect us from natural disaster? We can't determine where that tornado finds its pathway. For those that were in the pathway of a tsunami or whatever it may be. You can think in terms of disease. Who can control whether we get disease? And when we get the disease, who can control, okay, I'll do this and I'll get rid of it? Maybe not. How many of us can control the economy in such a way to be recession-proof? I don't have to worry personally. No. And so people innately know with all the control that I've gotten, it's not enough, and therefore maybe even a greater insecurity. We know this, that such Crises of life are indiscriminate regarding its victim. It's not that, oh, I'm a good guy, I don't have it, you're a bad person, you get... No, no, no. It's indiscriminate. Now, having said that, let me suggest that for Christians, it should be different. We should be thinking much differently, not what can I control, but remembering who is in control. Two important teachings. Number one, God is in control. Number two, that God, who is in control, 
does all things for the well-being of his people. Those are hard to believe. But I'll tell you this. Show me someone who doesn't buy into those two. I'm not sure God is in control. Who knows who's in control? You know, it just ha- what happens happens, and certainly bad things God has nothing to do with. I know that, and, and I, I can't really say that all things. My goodness, look at this, look at that, look at this, look at that. I can't say that all things work together for good, even for Christians. Come on. You t- give me somebody like that, and I will show you someone who is not living with great personal security. They're missing something very, very valuable. It was during the Iraq War that I had a, a friend who was in the military who was stationed in Tampa, Florida, and he was in intelligence. And I found out that there is a place in Tampa that they call the War Room. I don't know what facility it's in. I don't know any details about it, but there is a War Room. And during this time, they are strategizing. They are communicating what that strategy is. They are basically taking the the levers and pull them and tug them in such a way to determine what's going to happen on the battlefield. Can you imagine the difference of perspective that one would have who knows what we're going to do and not just looking to say what's playing out, what's going to happen, but no, I, I got an idea. I can see what's happening here. Well, in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're going to take a little sneak preview here before eternity And we're going to get to see not the war room, but the throne room, at least a glimpse into it. This throne room is where the strategies of God are being executed. We'll explain that in just a moment. But can you imagine the difference if we could imagine seeing life from the perspective of the throne room where God executes his plan? Well... Here's the question. To what degree would you say that that you, what degree do I say that I really embrace those two beliefs that God is in control and does what he does for the good of his people? I mean, is God in control of everything or is God in control of good things that happen? And oh, when those bad things happen, no, no, he's not in part of that. He, he had nothing to I mean, that God, who his hands were off on that. How do we view that? I mean, that's a question that every one of us have to answer. And there is no place in all of God's word, I am convinced, that one can go to better see and understand this truth than chapters four and chapter five of Revelation. They may be two of the five or ten greatest chapters for me in all of the Bible. I love these two. So here's the question. Your child is taken. Was God in control? Yes, no, somewhat, kind of, not really. When you or your spouse, your child gets cancer, Is he in control or not? Big question. When there's a moral failure, maybe a Christian leader, was God in control during that moment or was that one where he went, whoops, ooh, uh oh? Folks, we got to make that decision. So, in looking at that, we're going to explore chapters four and chapter five this week. 
And the issue is going to be, one, we have to learn, is God in control? What makes us believe he is? And what does that mean? And so forth. But then we have to trust. And that's the part where we can teach, but, but God's got to give us the trust. We've got to go to him and say, God, give me faith. I've got to believe. I've got to trust this. And then watch the difference. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this week a pre-Easter glimpse into the throne room, which is in heaven. Next week, we're going to take a post-Easter glimpse into the same throne room. And we're going to see a world of difference, all because of what we call the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So chapter 4, verse 1, turn in your Bibles, and let's, let's go at it for a few minutes. Now, please understand this. The language of Revelation is symbolism. It is symbolically representing something. So we don't want to take this to mean details of personalities and events and so forth. No, 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 no. Far better than that. The symbols are used because so much more can be said through symbols. We have our saying, and we all know it, a picture says more than a thousand words, right? Well, we're going to gain a lot of teaching just by only having symbolic understandings here. Now, will we be exactly and correct on everything? No, no, no. I'm sure we won't. But I'll tell you this. If I had the time to go behind each of these points and say this represents that, and I'm going to have to move along because we don't have time. We'd be here for hours. Know this, that there are Old Testament references and cross-references and other places of Scripture that gives us great warrant to say the things we say of what something represents. Are we for sure? No. Never totally for sure. But I think we can get close enough. You're going to get the big picture. So we begin in verse 1, chapter 4. It says, After these things, I, referring to the Apostle John, Looked and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard. Now, folks, that has to be Jesus. Chapter 1, where it talks about like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me. That's exactly the description when it identifies Jesus as the speaker. There is no reason not to believe this is Jesus speaking. And he said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. This is the time between the moment John hears this and when Christ is going to come back again. I'm going to encourage you not to easily just be persuaded that what you've heard in the past of what happens in Revelation is necessarily what the book of Revelation teaches. There is a very modern, it is very Western Perspective that is going to sound something like this. Well, there's going to be a secret rapture, and Christians will be taken away, and the rest of the world will look around and say, where'd they go? What happened? And planes will crash, and all these, you know, they had Christian pilots, and all this stuff's going to happen. And then when that happens, there's going to be a great tribulation that comes upon the earth for all of these lost people. And then Jesus is going to come and he is going to establish for 1,000 literal years, 1,000 years, a reign on this earth, and then will come the judgment. 
Many of us have heard that and assumed that must be the, the way it is. And maybe it is. But I'll say this. It's not the historic teaching. I don't think it's a global teaching. I, I think what we've done is we have, in recent years, heard it so much we've assumed that be the case. In the weeks following Easter, I'm going to give you an understanding of Revelation over four weeks. I hope and pray that you will be able to say, oh, here's another perspective and let you decide. What do you think? But we're going to get into some things that you're going to greatly appreciate because all with the design that we stay under the cover of this series, which is entitled, Everything is Going to Be All Right. And everything is going to be all right if... God is in control, and God does all things for the well-being of his people. So, he says, here's the, here's the foundation, this is what must take place, and now the picture begins. Verses 2 and 3 tell us that John sees God sitting on his throne. First thing he sees now is the throne. Now, you can imagine, here's John, and John is being invited to a door to look through an open door. Imagine being in Tampa, Florida during wartime and someone gets you in and says, come down the hall here, look through that door. And there's a door open. You look and go, whoa, look who's here. There's the general. He is the, the head of the whole. Th wow. And look at all of that equipment and all that strategic software that they're using and those screens. And look at this. They're looking at. They're seeing. Wow. But can you imagine being John and say, hey, look through that door and there is God Almighty in his throne room? He's going to describe what he sees. Immediately, verse 2, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So the throne. The throne is consistently symbolic of the authority and the power of a king. Well, this is the king of all. Now, when you put power and authority together, you get a word that we often use around here called sovereignty. We talk about the sovereignty of God. What is that saying? That he has not just authority, he has not just power, but he has the two. God is in control. It describes God in this way, like jasper, which is crystal clear. It would be referring to that which is pure or what we would say holy. It says like sardius, which is blood red. And almost certainly referring to his role in judgment in that he judges those who are opposed to him, who are his enemies. That he is a God who is, as he's expressed himself throughout scripture, a God of wrath. But then it says surrounded by a rainbow and we cannot help but think about the rainbow referring to the mercy of God. The Old Testament with Noah that God's showing his mercy upon earth. And particularly, as it says, as an emerald, which is green, probably referring to that which is life and growth and the spiritual peoples of his covenant that he's made with the rainbow, saying life-giving to you. And so what he's doing here is he is seeing God in this way. He's seeing God as a God who is holy, who is wrathful, who is merciful. 
I've heard this said through the years. For years and years, I've heard this statement. I believe it more every year of my life. A person's view of God will determine their way of life. So what do we have today? We have people say, oh, I believe God is a God of holiness, and I believe he's a God of wrath, period. And all we can do is say, oh, God. And then we've got those that say, oh, I believe God's a God of mercy and love and tenderness and kindness. Oh, I believe that. My good friend up there in heaven. I don't see God as a holy, righteous, wrathful God. I tell you, you've got to put it all together. And here he sees God, and he's, he's amazed. By the way, you take a good view of God, and you couple that with the right view of oneself. In great dignity, made in the image of God, but in depravity, sin that's brought havoc to every part of our being. You put that together, wonderful. They're, they're the people that seem to have a hold on life. Work on both of those. So now we move to a second scene in heaven, so to speak. It is John sees the court before the throne. It's not just that he sees God on his throne, but he sees the court around. And that court is going to be made up of many different entities. Beginning with verse 4, it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Now, numerology, we're going to get into that one of the four weeks following Easter. And I'll give you a little paper that uh, will really help you understand numerology. But you have to go through Old Testament, and particularly Old Testament, but all the different cross-references to understand why we come to these conclusions. But 12 is a number that has been used through Scripture to talk about organized religion. Well, 12 times 2 would be 24, and you have the elders. Well, who are elders? Elders are those that God has put in authority over his people. You have an Old Testament expression, we have 12 patriarchs. You have a New Testament uh, perspective, which would be the, the 12 apostles. And so here we're talking about a leadership, the lawgivers, as they may be called, of the Old Covenant, the law of Moses, the New Covenant, the law of Christ. And so here we see the 24 elders. It describes them in the way of being dressed in white, purity. They are priests ministering before God's people. They're in authority and leadership over God's people. Crowns and thrones, they're reigning with authority as they should be described as such, reigning with Christ. So we come to verse 5, it says, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Stop there. Can you just remember how many times in the Old Testament, if you're a reader of the Bible, where you have seen God's presence and with it comes thunder and lightning? For instance, the giving of the Ten Commandments and Moses meets with God to get the commandments, and when the people see the presence of God, what they see is thunder and lightning. And so God's presence, obviously. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven is a number used of divinity or perfection. Spirits here, we would believe this is the Holy Spirit. So you've got Jesus speaking, God on his throne, and here is the Holy Spirit. You have a, a recognition of the triune God and the throne here before 
John as he watches. Verses 6 and 7, it says, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal. Now, crystal is going to be that which is clear without blemish. Sea of glass, used in the book of Revelation to refer on numerous occasions as masses of people. These are masses of people seen in purity without blemish. You can't help but think about this is the people of God at large. Not just the leadership of God's people, but now we've moved to the people of God at large who are among the throne, the court, making up that court before God. And then it says, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, if you have eyes in front and behind, you can see everything going on, right? These creatures seem to know everything that's happening, assuming on this world, on this earth, in the world as we know it. This would most obviously be what's called the cherubim. Hendrickson talks about that as being those angels in the highest order of angelic beings who have a particular role to guard the important things of God. So here are these with eyes to see in front and behind four creatures. And it identifies them. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had the face of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now, no way of knowing for sure on this. I, I would assume of all the things I read and studied and so forth, I would suggest that more than likely lion, used to refer to wild animal life, a calf, maybe domesticated animal life, man, face of a man, human life, and the eagle, bird life. We know this, that four represents that which would be earthly, that which would be natural, that which would be created but not man. And so this perhaps representing now the next order of God's creation, which would be the world of animals and so forth that have life. The point is, you have all of God's creation. There's the point. Whatever the detail, all of God's creation, from the leadership of his people to his people at large, to the creatures he's created, even to the earthly creatures that are created. All things he has created are among his throne. Okay, good enough, but so what? Look at verses 8 through 11. John sees the worship of God the Father. It's going to be interesting that here are these that now understand the perspective of the throne room. They know all that's taking place. Eyes in front and behind for those that see what's on earth, the cherubim. And they are going to be before God, praising him, saying, way to go, God. Except for the tsunami. That one were God. That one wasn't good. But otherwise, praise be to you. And yea, well, that child, that, that, that one, that one I know. But we're, otherwise, yet no. 
This is with full perspective in the heavenlies. All see God as creator on his throne. And here's how it reads, 8 through 11. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Lord, what we have, what you've given to us, rewards and otherwise, it is all of your grace and mercy. And they are saying, to you be the honor for what we have enjoyed saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. And so what he's saying here is, here's this grand worship of who? God the Father, who is creator. All the focus is on his creative work of creation. And the fact that he's created and he's on the throne and he is ruling over all of his creation, there's going to be praise. Now, I got to this point in my study. It was about midweek. And I said, boy, look at the picture of this. And wouldn't it be good if we could just have something to picture in our minds? And so we have a, a member of this church, Steve Stanley, is an amazing artist and and during the men's retreat two years ago when I was speaking, he's back in the back and he is drawing my message so that there's a picture of what I've said. And I loved what I saw then. And so I thought, oh, maybe Steve could do a picture that would kind of show what this looks like. And so if you take a look at the screens, this is what he came up with. I think it's just fabulous. The 24 elders and the four creatures to remind us of the four with the eyes around and the flame, the fire, the, the view of God there in the center. The rainbow, the emerald, the green. There's a picture, and here's what I'd like to ask you to do. Take a snapshot of it right now. And this next week, I don't think many of us, there'll be only a few that will lose a loved one this week. There'll be only a few that'll hear the word cancer, terminal. But every one of us is going to run into a situation maybe like a red light when we're in a hurry. Or somebody that cuts in front of us in the car, which we think is inappropriate. Worse than that, somebody that does something at work that we think is wrong and inappropriate and shouldn't have happened. Or maybe it's you got pushed aside in the business that you're in and you were wronged in some form or fashion. I don't know what it might be. It's probably going to be a lot of little things for us. But what if we believe that God was in control of that? And we had this picture here. And it's kind of indelibly imprinted in our minds. And we start saying, oh, God, you're in control, aren't you? What a different perspective. Now, I said I was going to teach chapters 4, chapter 4 today, 
and chapter 5 on Easter. Couldn't stop here. We got to go into the first four verses so you get the full picture of what John experiences pre-Easter. And so look at chapter 5 with me. John sees what all but a few see. What John is going to see in these first four verses, not the following ones, but in the first four verses, he is going to see what all the lost world sees every day in our lives. What they're seeing if they have lost hope by seeing that their hope is a false hope. And once that diminishes, then they start seeing what John sees. Unfortunately, what John sees is what many of us here as Christians see, whether it be red light, whether it be the word cancer. And as a result, we're going to see that John is going to weep. He's going to live a a sorrowful moment seeing only what he sees. And that's what's happening to some of us, I fear. And we want that to change. So let's see what happens with John. It says, I saw in the right hand, which is a place of importance, remember Jesus at the right hand of God, who sat on the throne a book, better yet a scroll, literally, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, this is representing God's eternal plan that's going to be executed from this point on till Jesus comes back. Unfortunately, it's sealed. It's not open. And he sees this scroll. Now, this would be what we call the decrees of God. That is God determining whatsoever comes to pass. It's what we read in Ephesians 1 verse 11 when it says, His purpose, who works all things, not some or most, all things after the counsel of His will. This concerns all of His creation for all time. Every detail. As the Westminster Divines defined it, all wise, all incomprehensible, uh, all comprehensible. I mean, it includes everything, unchangeable. These are his eternal decrees. Then it says, written inside and on the back. What he's saying there is there was nothing left out. The tsunami wasn't left out. The economy was not left out. The disease, the death, persecutions, nothing was left out. It's all in there. But it says it's sealed, which means that this plan is unrevealed. It is non-executed. It is not being executed as long as it is closed. So not to open is to say there would be no protection from trials. Trials hit, okay, there they are. What do we do? Okay, live through them. There's no purpose. There's no design. It's just the way it is. There's no salvation from sin. So, okay, we got sin and it's sin and deal with it and try to stop as much as you can so you don't hurt too many people and life goes on with you okay until you die because it doesn't matter after death anyway because there is no future inheritance whatsoever. And that's what John sees. He sees that it's sealed. And then the next two verses, this is what brings him to his grief. 
And I saw a strong angel, verses 2 and 3, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And the response, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. No man, no angel, no created being, no one. So verse 4, then I began to weep. I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. There's no hope. There's the world today. And if God's not in control, if he's not executing his plan, that's all we got left is to weep and say, I guess there's no real hope, is there? Well, I think most of you know the rest of the story, and we're going to look at it next week. But in chapter 5, he's going to look around. He's going to say, look behind, and he looks around, and there is one worthy. It's the one whose voice he's been hearing. It's worthy is Jesus Christ. And it will make it real clear his worth is based upon the fact that being almighty God, he had gone to the cross, had paid the redemption price, and now had been resurrected. This is his coronation day, and he is going to take the scroll, which is what happens at resurrection, to use the symbolism. And now we're going to see that he's going to start breaking over, open chapter 6 and following, one seal after the next, after the next. And guess what happens when he opens the seal? First seal, war is part of his plan. Second, persecution, a part of his plan. Economic hardship, thirdly, a part of his plan. Death and the disease that brings it a part of a plan that he is specifically executing. Let me tell you, John knew there was disease. John knew there was war. John knew all these things existed. But what he didn't see is that there is a plan. But when he sees what God is going to do as he gives the scroll to his son, Jesus, who now is going to co-inhabit the throne with him, and Jesus, now worthy, begins to execute it, is saying, yes, these things are happening, and they are a part of the plan of God. But the good news here, the part that we play in it is that the things that happen to us as his family, it's designed with our good in mind. Do we see it? Do we understand it? No, not really. But I'll tell you this, every time, not every time, but most times when I have the opportunity to pray with somebody in this church who's going through a very difficult times and struggles and hardships and so forth, I'll very often say something like this as I talk to the Lord. I say, Lord, please, for our friend here, we can't see. We're, we're fallen. We don't have the eyes yet to be able to see. But Lord, would you give them trust would you give them faith that if we could see what you see right now we would stand before you and right now we'd say yay God we'd say don't stop what you're doing let it go because I see now 
We can't see, therefore we have to trust. And that's the call of the Christian faith, to learn to trust. Now I'm going to go into all of that again next week. I'll recap what we did this week, and I'll move into this in a clear manner. But let me tell you, there are a lot of people that are needing the hope that God's in control. And the point is this. One day, Christian, we're going to be a part of that sea of glass. We're going to be a part of the throngs of God's people who are worshiping him for all that he has done. Why not begin now? I think it's what in Scripture is called giving thanks in all things. I think that's the teaching. Why? Because God is in control. If you're here without a, a confidence in the relationship you, you want with God, go to the cross. I mean, that's, that's where it happens. We're going to see that next week clearly. It is the cross. And plead his mercy. Remember, he is a merciful God. And you've got to do that because he's a holy and wrathful God. And go to him and meet him and fall into his loving arms and see what it's like to, to have a relationship with your creator. And Christian, man, so many of us, oh, this is terrible. This shouldn't have happened. And why did this happen? And oh, this shouldn't have happened. If this hadn't happened, and if this could only happen. And that's our life. All we're doing is this shouldn't. Yeah, I wish this and I couldn't. How come? Oh, no, no, no. Get a picture of the throne room and start saying, Yea, God, give me trust. You know what's best. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray this week, give us that picture over and over again that we may believe that you are in control. And thank you that not only are you in control, but because of our Redeemer, his work, our Savior Jesus, that we can know that all things work together for good to those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Grant it, we pray, we need faith. We ask it in the great name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.